Hi, friends. I'm Tim Viegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, our podcast that brings you conversations about inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. Wow, wow, wow. If you are listening to this episode on the day that it publishes, my wife and I are celebrating 20 years of marriage. Today, on September 28th, 2003, we were married in front of our friends and family at Descanso Gardens in La Cunada, Flint Ridge, California. So thanks so much for sharing this moment with me and to my beautiful bride, Brianna. Love you so much, darling. Here is to the next 20. Okay, enough mushy stuff. We have another fantastic guest with us today. Brooke Ellison is a disability rights advocate, author, and professor at Stony Brook University. She became quadriplegic at the age of 11 after being hit by a car. And Brooke has gone on to do some fascinating things. She graduated from Harvard University and even ran for the New York State Senate. Brooke is passionate about promoting inclusivity and changing societal perceptions of disability. For this episode, Brooke discusses her book, Look Both Ways, and shares her personal journey of living with quadriplegia and how it shaped her understanding of disability. She discusses the importance of shifting the narrative around disability from one of pity and shame to one of strength and empowerment. Brooke emphasizes the need for inclusive policies that consider disability as a cross-cutting issue in all aspects of public policy. She also highlights the significance of universal design and the benefits of inclusion for all individuals. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsor for this week's episode, Changing Perspectives, an international nonprofit that partners with schools and districts to create inclusive and equitable learning communities for all students. They offer customizable teacher trainings, family workshops, and curriculum resources. They've already helped over 300,000 students, 12,000 teachers, and 500 schools. Visit their website at changingperspectivesnow.org to learn more and schedule a free meeting. We've got a great conversation for you today that will help all of us to think inclusive. Stick around till the very end for the mystery question. And for free time, I address some comments from social media about getting into the nuts and bolts of how we implement inclusive education. We'll be back after a quick break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Brooke Ellison, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. Brooke, your book, Look Both Ways, is fantastic. Thank you so much for writing it and for sharing your life and story. There's so many things I learned about you, (laughs) like you ran for the New York State Senate, that you graduated from Harvard. Uh, But why don't we just start with... Why did you want to tell your story and why do you feel it's relevant? First, I'm Tim. Thank you so much for welcoming me to your show and for your thoughts on my book. Um, as I'm sure you could tell, uh, the both ways is a deeply personal and important uh, work for me. Um, I, I view it as one of the most important things that I've done. And, you know, I've done a lot of interesting things in my life, but yeah, I, I was deeply committed to writing this book. Um, so, uh, as I write about, actually, in Look Both Ways, and you have mentioned in many times in the past, I, I first wrote a book right when I just graduated from college, just out of, um, out of Harvard uh, in 2000. My graduation generated quite a bit of attention and um, you know, interest, and so I wrote a book thereafter. And um, so at that point, it was I was 10 years after my accident, right? 10 years post-accident. And even though I was I had lived 10 years with quadriplegia at that time, like I I I had still I didn't really fully understand what it meant to be disabled, right? I had lived with disability for 10 years. I had accommodated my life to living with a disability, but I didn't really understand what it meant to be disabled and why I think there's a distinction between being disabled and living with a disability. Um, But for all those years after uh, I wrote that book, um, I knew that I wanted to write another book. I knew that there was a part of myself that I wanted to share. I just didn't really know what it was going to look like. and yeah, so it was actually, as you mentioned, my 40th birthday, and I became pretty sick. I was battling some uh, an infection that was persistent and not going, you're not going away. It was a pressure ulcer that, if you're not familiar with what they are, they can be quite catastrophic to people who use wheelchairs. And um, I said to myself, you know, if, if I don't write this book now, I might not ever have the opportunity to write it again. Like, I didn't want to be frivolous about my life or not um, understand the kind of, you know, 
severity that I could experience. So that summer after my 40th birthday, which as you mentioned was like such a, a fantastic day, um, I locked myself in my bedroom and I said, you know, Brooke, think about the things that you actually want to share with people. What are, what are the most important parts of who you are and things you've learned and things you maybe didn't ever have the self-confidence to talk about before. So I, that's what I did that entire summer. I just kind of closed myself off and just, um, poured my heart out into my laptop, you know, talking about things that I just never thought that I had the capacity to talk about before, whether that is instances of love and what that means to me, some of the, the hardships and feelings of um, yeah, questioning of myself that I've experienced because of how people have perceived me or how I think people perceive me or being the uh, disabled member of my family and what that meant, and then how I needed to shift those thoughts to the virtues that have come out of my life, the kinds of understandings I've come to because of the disabilities that I live with. Um, and that was quite powerful. That was really meaningful for me. And that's really where the title of the book came from, right? So, you know, look both ways is, um, you know, obviously an acknowledgement to how we're taught to cross the street, right? I was hit by a car. It's kind of the the, uh, the instructions or the, the guidebook, so it's not become hit by a car and look both ways. But at the same time, it's really um, how we need to understand our lives and looking at our lives in terms of Instances of difficulty and instances of struggle, but also the lessons that we learn from that. And you know, to touch on the second part of your question, um, you know, at the, the beginning of Look Both Ways, I'm very deliberate about acknowledging that you know, when I set out to write Look Both Ways, I wasn't trying to write a book about disability. Right? Like that was not my goal. Um, in so doing, you know, in putting words to paper, I came to, to, to understand very clearly that disability is, is just one representation of the many different kinds of challenges that we all experience, right? It's a very obvious one, but getting through life with a disability is a very, requires the very same skill set that I think we all need to draw upon when we're dealing with any challenges in our lives, right? Learning to understand our lives differently, no less valuably, but differently. Um, and that was really kind of, I think, the center piece of the both ways. And I think how it unites many of us, irrespective of what our experiences might be. There's a lot to unpack there, but I wanted to focus on, you said you weren't sure how to be a disabled person um, like in your early 20s, right? So like, <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess we're, I, I guess thinking back, I'm not sure if we really know how to be people <laughs> yeah. in your early 20s. But I wonder because of uh, your experience of becoming disabled, even if it was at 10 years old, of seeing life through a couple different ways, if that has informed you on how to think about disability, because this, this book really resonates with me because 
I, I have three children, but my youngest is 10. And she is very interested in my work. Not that my kids don't, it's not like they don't care, you know, but, but Imogen like asks me questions all the time. Daddy, who are you interviewing today? You know, what are you writing? What are you doing? And I mentioned, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm interviewing Brooke Ellison. She wrote a book and, you know, and she was hit by a car at 10 and she became disabled and, and stuff like that. And so she asked a lot of questions. Um, sure. And sure. she asked a lot of questions about, well, are you disabled? Like, what's the difference between if you become disabled later and if you're born with a disability? And is, is like, is that different, you know, and is it, you know, and she's learning about inherited traits and, you know, stuffing like in school. So is that an inherited trait or not an inherited trait? And so I'm you know explaining this to her, but I think the reason I bring that up is because there's a lot of questions, right. Around disability and, and how to think about it. And so as a person that became disabled later in life, even if it was at 10, how has that informed you with how to talk about it and uh, how you think about yourself? That's a really powerful question, actually. So I've been asked many questions, and that's not one that I've ever been asked before. So I think that's really that's a phenomenal question. So, um, so I lived uh, ten years of my life without disability, and in those ten years, yeah, I was able to do things that you're not able to do right now, at least not in the same way. So I was a dancer and yeah, that was a huge part of my life for you for, uh, since I, I was two years old. Yeah, I sang in my church choir. I was involved in, in leveling baseball and studying karate, right? So things that I, that I, had I been born with you know, a congenital disability, I would not have had the opportunity to take part in. You know, not that my life would have been lesser as a result of that, but things that I would not have been able to enjoy and, and have since become very much a part of who I am. What I think is interesting is that you know, I was very young at the time of my accident, kind of the accident that left me paralyzed from uh, from my neck down. And at that time, it was just you know 1990, right? So early on, um, in, actually, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act had just been passed you know, two months before my accident. So July of 1990, my accident happened in September of 1990. And I think at that point in social history, um, society really not had not come to any great understanding of what disability meant, what, how to include, or you know, even to this day, not include people with disabilities, how to value their lives, appreciate them. Um, and I was very much a product of that social thinking, right? So I thought that disability was. Um, something you needed to be ashamed of. I thought that people with disabilities are the people you should pity, right? Like people who were living some kind of less lesser life, less valuable life, less worthy life. I remember being discharged from rehabilitation from the hospital. So I was in the hospital for nine months, six weeks in intensive care, and then seven and a half months in rehabilitation. And in that rehabilitation setting, you know, for as long as I was there, I was kind of taught to accommodate my life to um, to disability, right? To, to um, make the modifications 
that I that I needed to try to just get along, get get by, right? And, and um, not really feel proud of who I was, but just kind of accommodate my existence to a world that was not going to be welcoming to me. And I thought that that was just the right way to approach it, right? That was the mindset that I had, and that the, the life. The, the comparison point that I had was only going to make my life lesser than what it had been. And I think that was an unfortunate interpretation of my life that carried me through for a, a great number of years. Like, I was always um, evaluating my life as a person with a disability in comparison to some better life or some other life that was the right life. And I think that was unfortunate. That kind of clouded my thinking for a long time. It wasn't until years after that, probably many years, even after I graduated from college, probably headed into graduate school when I could understand myself differently, like not as a weaker or a lesser person, not as a, um, a manifestation of all of the negative stereotypes that I had understood to be associated with disability, but one of strength and one of empowerment and one of resilience and creativity and problem solving, like all of these really strong virtues that were clearly the product of living with disability, living life differently, even living in a world that was not designed for me. Like all of those things I think were really, really valuable in um, helping me to understand disability differently, but then also understanding humanity differently, allowing uh, me to see how people can thrive irrespective of what they're told they can do, um, thrive irrespective of whether or not the world is welcoming that level of, of thriving, and understanding that it, the challenges that we can initially anticipate as being way too much to bear way more than any one person has the capacity to handle actually are manageable, are things that we can continue to move forward with nonetheless, or even sometimes because of. I feel like as a society, we're, we're getting better. Um, we're certainly not where I think either of us want us to be. Um, I wonder because you 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 talk about experiences of um, people saying to you like oh the, what you're going through it's it's too much uh, and they're not sure if they could do it I'm not strong enough right so like what what kinds of things do you say to people who think that way? And, um, you know, what do we, ne- what do we need to do as a society to move uh, people beyond that type of thinking? Right. So I think there's, there's like a multifaceted way of approaching that question, right? So, um, in some ways it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of demeaning, right? It's kind of like, oh, your life is so terrible. How could you possibly survive that kind of awful life? Which I think is in and of itself, you know, at minimum a bit dismissive and a you know, lack of understanding of what my life is all about. Right, my life is full of beauty. So yeah, it's of course full of of pain and difficulty, but at the same time full of love and beauty and all these things that are really make it so so valuable. Um, 
so that's so the, at first there's that, and then there's kind of this whole notion of um, what many people in the disability community call right inspiration porn, right? That they need that people need to kind of benchmark their own lives versus somebody's life who they they perceive to be um, less fortunate, right? So I'm gonna make myself feel better based on somebody else's life, right? So I, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, I think that we're all, um, we gain a lot of insight and a lot of um, encouragement from how we inspire one another. So I'm not quite mm. you. So um, I don't reject that idea quite as much as I think others might. But at the same time, like I think that we undervalue our own capacity to move through instances of challenge. I think we fail to appreciate and, and as a result, underestimate our ability to move forward with our lives in times of, of greatest difficulty. And I, I mean, that certainly applies to me as well. So if somebody had said to me, you know, on the day before my accident that you're tomorrow, you're going to encounter, you know, a devastating, life-changing accident uh, and you'll live, you know, for the rest of your life or for however many years, um, unable to move your body and breathing through a ventilator, like, I don't know if I would have been able to say, okay, you yeah. That sounds great, and you should be until you graduate from Harvard. Like that's just like does it, those pieces don't fit together. They don't meld with any kind of you know like social picture of what disability is all about, right? And I think that that's unfortunate. So, um, and I talk about this in the book that uh, one of the classes that I teach. I'm a professor at Stony Brook University, and I teach. Um, medical ethics is like kind of my area of focus in addition to some others. And, um, you know, I, many of the uh, questions around um, medical ethics you know, revolve around people who have undergone you know, life-changing, you know, very, very difficult circumstances, you know, whether or not they ought to live their lives, whether or not they think their lives um, are worth living, um, whether that's through a diagnosis or some kind of injury or what have you. So, when, so whenever we get into that conversation, I ask my students, you know, what for them would constitute a life not worth living? Because I want them to, to think, you know, kind of very proactively about this, you know, especially if they're going into the healthcare field. And many of them say things to me like, oh, well, if I were dependent on machines to live, you know, I wouldn't want to live anymore. Or if I was um, confined to a wheelchair, or if I couldn't do all the things that I used to be able to do, or if I was dependent on family members, if I became a burden to my family. Um, like, all of these things they, they say to me almost without even realizing who they're talking to. Oh, no, I'm just like, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, like, I have to swallow hard and say, okay, like, I'm not going to be offended by any of that. Like, in some ways, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of funny and kind of a little bit liberating. But, um, but then as we get to go through the course of the semester, we talk about things a little bit more deeply. Um, you know, they come to realize, wait a second, many of the things that I had typically understood about disability or understood about life struggles are not necessarily how they ought to be understood. And, you know, like, I've, I'm a very firm believer that um, 
we have been taught to understand disability in terms of the physical components of it, right? Like, just parts of our bodies that are in some way impaired without understanding that disability is much more than that, right? It's a sociocultural construct that takes into consideration the kinds of policies that we enact or the environments that we build or the um, social services that we put into place or the technologies that we, uh, that we innovate, all of which either can um, enable somebody or further disable somebody. And I like, those are all, equally as, as much a part of disability and to just kind of focus on one's physicality, I think misses the role that we all play in helping to either empower or, um, you know, disempower somebody. And I think my students ultimately understand that they have a role to play in, in that conversation as well. And we, when those kinds of things are put into place like that, those are the kinds of things that I think people fear the most about disability. Like if they, if I were to do like a thought experiment asking people, you know, what would they be most concerned about if they were told that they were going to be disabled tomorrow? Like it would be things like, oh, I wouldn't be able to have me work on my job or I wouldn't be able to have a relationship, right? All of these things that are purely socially based that we have a, a um, capacity to make a difference and if we actually invested our time in that way right you can you can get through the physical part of disability but it's all those other social things that we don't really pay as much attention to and almost abdicate our responsibility in trying to fix so like there's many pieces to that to that very question i think that you know, they are they're all relevant and all really important to how we all have a role to play in this I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You mentioned public policy, and I know that's something that you worked really hard on when you were um, running for the New York State Senate. I'm assuming that something that still is on your mind. So (laughs) what are some of the policies uh, on top of mind right now that that you feel like are we really need to work on? Right. Yeah. So actually, um, just a couple of weeks ago. I was part of a panel discussion at the Harvard Kennedy School talking about um, 
disability and disability policy and how people with disabilities are often, you know, a, um, a component of the population who are left out of, uh, who's left out of policy conversations. And I think what we have typically done, um, over the years is look at policies related to people with disabilities as disability policy, right? Like its own category, right? Its own siloed category and as a result it almost becomes an afterthought right it almost becomes like oh this is a population that we could conceivably think about or not or people who we um either are a part of or are not right kind of this this othering of people with disabilities rather than looking at disability as a cross-cutting intersectional issue that that cuts across really every aspect of public policy, whether it is employment policy, whether it is educational policy, transportation, healthcare, right? Every aspect of, of public policy, even things like immigration, right? So, I, so last year I was a part of a panel conversation on, on immigration and how uh, immigrants with people, uh, immigrants with disabilities have so regularly been um, denied access to the country from this larger, um, they're going to be a social charge kind of conversation. They're going going to exact resources rather than give to the community, give to the population. I think all of those things are totally wrongheaded in a really unfortunate way of looking at things. So, I mean, there are many policy questions that I think need to be tackled much more uh, forthrightly and from a much more uh, proactive standpoint, right? So within the context of the disability community, one of, especially for people who have very significant disabilities, one of the biggest fears is whether or not they'll have the capacity to live at home, right? Live in the community, right? There's, as we all, all saw throughout the course of the pandemic, um, People with disabilities and you know, people who live in um, medical institutions or other kinds of institutions were very much um, at risk. Right? Their lives were extremely um, imperiled by um, not just the pandemic itself, you know, the, not just COVID nineteen, but isolation. Right, the Surgeon General just mentioned the other day um, how deleterious uh, isolation can be to one person's health. Right, it's, it's equivalent to smoking on a fifteen cigarettes a day, or you're not exercising at all. Right, that uh, has a tremendous effect on people's lives, and people with disabilities experience your tremendous loneliness. Their 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 fear of living in a medical institution is a real one. Is a really strong one. Um, we are experiencing a tremendous healthcare shortage and without people who can provide care for people with disabilities to live in the community, they're at risk of having to, you know, to move away from their families and friends completely um, living in, a, in an institution or that they could be unsafe or um, in some way detrimental to their, to their lives. So I think that is a big, a big issue. Um, during the pandemic, fortunately, many people with disabilities were able to uh, be employed in ways that they hadn't been before, right, through um, remote work opportunities that didn't really present themselves before. And, like, we need to make sure that that kind of paradigm shift and societal change 
maintains itself, right? Some of the lessons that we learned during the pandemic can actually stay in place so that people with disabilities can actually um, be a part of um, their communities, society, and uh, employment. I think we need to look at access totally differently, right? So uh, one of the, uh, another course that I teach here at Stony Brook is a course called Inclusion and Innovation. And, you know, basically training future engineers uh, how to be inclusive uh, people with disabilities when it comes to their own future innovations. And my students here, we're talking about a great number of potential technological advancements, but ultimately focus their attention on accessibility and how to make sure that uh, our future cities and towns are accessible for people with disabilities and how they wanted to structure this is rather than looking at some of the kind of compliance and mandate based approaches to accessibility which is kind of what the americans with disabilities act has taken right like what are the bare minimum standards you need to put into place in order to make your business or to make your building accessible right? rather than looking at it from that direction like talking about it in terms of opportunity and like what are the opportunities that we are all given by virtue of of including people with disabilities in either in a business setting or workplace and like changing that conversation from one of just token gestures to how we all benefit from inclusion like i think that's a really important shift in conversation and all of this really is to say that you know the, the um the way disability has been understood and then as a result has been legislated upon is almost a result of this um unfortunate understanding or framing of disability where it's looked at as a medical issue rather than a more societal one, right? Looking at disability almost as like how somebody is a medical failure. And as a result, like people we, we view as contagious or like people we want to cherish, shy away from or think are um, vulnerable or represents human vulnerability rather than the opposite, rather than the strengths-based kind of approach to disability that I've come to understand disability to actually be living all these years with disability. I understand it very differently than I had. So I think all of these uh, different understandings need to be embedded in our public policies, right? Right from the get-go, right? Not as an afterthought, right? Not trying to like wedge disability into some other piece of policy that we've already created, but thinking about it from the get-go. Like as we talk about matters of public policy that I think are so important coming out of the pandemic, whether it is an infrastructure bill or a Build Back Better agenda, like disability needs to be a, a focus of it, right, needs to be a central component of how we think about things, You not only for people with disabilities right now, but also for people who are going to be disabled moving forward, right, those who are living with long COVID or are going to understand their lives very differently as a result of experiencing um, COVID. Then also with a mindfulness that the kinds of modifications that we make to the world, often because of uh, people with disabilities, ultimately ends up benefiting many people, right? Universal design is kind of a, um, an, a, a growth of that, that the modifications that we make to some ultimately end up 
benefiting just about everybody, right? So to have that level of inclusion right from the get-go is ultimately uh, creates a better world for just about everybody. I'm glad I'm glad you brought up universal design because that is something in the educational space. It's a word and a concept that has been that's gaining traction. And I'm I'm wondering because you, you in the book you talk about coming back to school after your accident, and I know that that would have been in the '90s. And what kinds of supports were available then? Uh, and I wonder, you know, if if you were to if you were ten years old and you know had your accident and had to come back to school now if what kind of differences you would see if that's even something that you think about yeah no i think about that all the time and again you finished the question so um after i so i was in a after my accident um i was in a coma for 36 hours right so for a day and a half it was highly questionable as to whether or not i was going to survive like uh, the EEG readings that were being done on my brain were extremely abnormal, um, flat, essentially, and the expectation was that I was not going to survive, uh, and if I were to, that yeah, I'd, I'd likely be severely cognitively impaired. Um, when I awoke from the, from the coma that I was in, um, I was able to make eye contact with my parents and recognize their faces. Uh, the first thing that I was able to communicate to them was, am I going to be left back in school? Right. So like that was the first thing that I cared about. The first thing that I wanted to make sure was not going to be the case. <laughs> uh, however bizarre that may have been. So at that point, um, my parents, um, who uh, were at the time younger than I am now, but you know, by several years, they made a promise to me that, um, that that would not be the case, that I would get back to school and be able to return to, to school with my friends. Um, I didn't understand fully at that point what that path was going to look like from where I was in the hospital bed to ultimately returning to school. But fortunately, one year, exactly one year to the day of my accident, so on September 4th of 1991, I was able to return to school. Now that, we did not have any idea what kind of battle that was going to be. So I remember I was discharged from the hospital in May of 1991. So I missed that entire academic year from September of 1990 until May of 1991. Um, and nonetheless like i was gung-ho and like so excited to get back into the classroom and to, get, to start learning as quickly as i could so my teachers um who would have been my teachers in my seventh grade year they came to my home and they they worked with me that entire summer and i kind of made sure that i was as fully prepared as i possibly could be to start back school to back to school um in eighth grade year with my class that said, there was a great deal of resistance from the local school board and school administrators about what my presence in the classroom was going to be or look like or the kinds of um, fears that it was going to create for my classmates. Right, So that was one, um, one drum that was being 
you know, banged that, uh, yeah, that my presence in the classroom was going to be either disruptive in some way or um, traumatizing to my my classmates or make them feel uncomfortable in some way or that I don't know what they they thought I was going to be doing in the classroom. Uh, Popping wheelies in the front of the classroom. Like, I, don't, I don't really know what they were envisioning, but they were absolutely not not comfortable with it. Um, but my family and I said, you know, "This is this is an important battle. This is something that we need to help to try to change." Right? If not only for me, then for you know, other kids who are coming you know, behind me. Um, and we fought and we prevailed. And the only way that we were able to make this happen was that um, I. I because I'm on a ventilator, I could at any point become detached from the ventilator, in which case you know, my life would immediately be at risk if there's not somebody who is there to reattach a tube that has come loose or something like that. Um, then I would not be able to breathe and yeah, w- would die. Um, so, and you know, I have other medical needs that, that need to be taken care of throughout the course of the day. So I needed to have somebody with me who could do those things. Um, we had initially a nurse lined up to go with me to school, and um, that morning or the day before, she that nurse canceled. So my parents were like, "You know, this is not sustainable." You know, on day one, you know, our daughter's ability to go to school is going to be contingent on somebody else. You know. This could happen in a given day. This could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. So the only way that we could make it work, the only way that we knew that um, there would be kind of a reliable system in place would be for my mother to go to school with me. So her, my the day of my accident was actually my mother's first day as a special education teacher. Uh, it was also her last day. So she left her job. She kind of took a leave of absence for that year. But not knowing that that was going to be, she was going to have to go on a permanent leave. So she left her position as a teacher, which, you know, was um, consequential in many ways, right? Not just to her, but to our entire family. Like my parents were reluctant re- potential salary or future salary and kind of how we we're going to continue to live our lives. But she kind of forewent that so I could go to school. So she was with me every single day throughout my junior high school years, high school years, and even into college and graduate school. Like now, that is one extreme example of how families have to modify their, you know, the, how they operate in order to accommodate um, the needs of uh, children who require additional supports in order to get to school. Fortunately, your legislation has changed since the time that I was in school. Right now, school districts have to pay for nurses, you know, for kids to, to return to school if they need them. School classrooms are much more accessible. Right? We're thinking, as you mentioned, right, with universal design or making sure that um, the classroom is accessible for as many kids as possible, right? Cre- creating the least restrictive environment so that kids um with all levels of ability can learn in the same in the same setting. Um, I know that since I was a student at Harvard, um, there have been other students with quadriplegia or other kinds of disabilities who have not only you know, 
traversed the same halls and the same paths that I've had that I did, but also stayed in the very same dorm rooms that I did, or it's rooms that were constructed or modified so that I could use them, have been used by other students with disabilities. And I feel very, very proud about that. Like, um, the, the level of need and supports that I have are quite considerable. Right, so I think there are many other students who have possibly fewer needs who can benefit from the kinds of things that, that were already put into place to accommodate me. And I think that is, that's fantastic. And if this, if my experiences and some of the paths that I was able to forge can be a transformative um, process and experience for other people, then my gosh, like I can't think of a better way to um, have lived my life. So I think that there has been change, there has been progress, um, but certainly not enough. And I think we need to do a lot more to make sure that there are many more kids with disabilities as fully integrated into classrooms as as possible. So I have two nephews who live right down the street, and uh, one of them, uh, the older one, Carter, um, he has been you know like a presence in my in my house for as long as he's been on the planet. So I, he's just stay here with his little baby um, and my sister went back to to work and you know, he's here all the time and he is so like resentful that he doesn't have a wheelchair and he wants to know when he can get a ventilator <laughs> and <laughs> um so there's there's a boy in his class who uses a wheelchair and he pushes him, him around he helps him get in and out of the doors so like he has such a level of depth of understanding of diversity and experience. And I think that that is a true gift. And I think the more exposure that other kids have to similar experiences, like that only benefits everybody, right? That creates a, a, a kind of world I think many of us want to see where people don't feel like um, they are marginalized for some uh, potentially unrelated part of who they are. So I think that we've made progress, but certainly there's much more distance to go. Yeah. So for for instance, I love your example of of Carter, yeah. and just because he knows you and is is open to that experience, having somebody in in his class that is different that uses a wheelchair, um, it's no big deal, right? Um, and that's that was actually my experience as a teacher. Um, specifically for kids who used wheelchairs and maybe uh, some other like adaptive mobility devices where I found the biggest hurdle was when the disability was not physical, when it was intellectual sure, um, or, you know, maybe there was some sensory, some sensory needs. Uh, and I had many, many, staff members that would say, well, they, you know, that student has down syndrome and it has an intellectual disability. They do not belong in that fourth grade classroom, learning everyone else. They need to be in a separate room. They need to be working at their own pace with kids like them. And, um, I know that resonates with a lot of, uh, our audience because uh, most of our audience are educators and, um, are looking towards, how to make their schools more inclusive uh, and, you know, for all, for all learners. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about, you know, we've made progress and certainly there are laws that have been in place that 
make things more accessible and and uh, people have been able to um, not necessarily force, but look back to the law and say, hey, you need to provide certain uh, accessibility options for me because I have this particular disability. Um, but what what do you think is going to push educators and schools and school leaders more towards uh, being more inclusive of those with intellectual disabilities, autism, uh, and other, and you know, other disabilities that maybe aren't so obvious or physical. I think this goes back to this number one, in this mandate approach to accessibility, right? Like what is, is the bare minimum or the minimum we need to do in order to make our public spaces, um, our schools, our places of employment accessible, right? So like, what do we just need to do to, to be, uh, to not be held liable, right? Or to, um, you know, to, to, to just offer some level of inclusion without understanding inclusion to be a benefit of, to everyone, right? So a true inclusive classroom understands the diverse ways that people, that, that kids learn, and then also understands the diverse ways that um, kids contribute to the classroom. So, I, of course, I understand the uh, importance of um, in learning. Obviously, right? That's first and foremost. But kids learn in, in very different ways, whether or not they've been diagnosed with or, or classified as having a disability. Right? Um, they all add something very valuable to the classroom. They all add something meaningful to a conversation. I think that is really important. They all make children richer as a result. Um, so there's a speed at which I think parents want their kids to learn, but not everybody learns at that same pace. And that's a lesson that I think is important to, to, to be taught as early on as possible, right? Because what happens later on in life is, is an extension of what has happened in the classroom. And you want kids and, and adults to be as fully uh, cognizant of how different people influence a conversation, the kinds of contributions that they make in various ways that maybe not might not be quite so obvious from the get-go, right? I think of that as a really important level of understanding that you don't get unless you have that level of additional exposure to, to, to people with, from different backgrounds. Coming up next, the mystery question. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, so we have a few minutes, and um, so I've made a couple new, not really New Year's resolutions, but <laughs> resolutions for the new for the new season. Right. Like um, and uh, um, so I got these these interview decks, oh like a couple of years ago, <laughs> and they're random questions. So are you game to answer one of these random questions? Sure. sure. All right. I'm not sure what I'm going to call it, like if it's going to be a segment or if I'm just going to, you know, I don't know what. So it's a bit. It's yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit. So here we go. All right. Um, so I'm going to take a random question. Hopefully, right. hopefully it's a good one. All right. So here we go. Um, uh, well, it's so. What do you think is not fair in today's society? <laughs> We've kind of been talking about it, but whatever you want, it doesn't have to be disability related. I think it's not fair with society. Oh my gosh. Okay, hold on. Oh gosh. All right, what is not fair within the society? All right, well, maybe that you can't get good bagels outside of New York. Like, that's not fair to the rest of the world. <laughs> that's, that's fundamentally unfair. Uh, I would say, um, I think what is unfair is that we are not taught to understand people, irrespective of what their wild lives might be, uh, before we... Um, place them in some kind of socially constructed idea of who they are. Right? Like I think that we don't afford ourselves enough of an opportunity to get to know somebody before we make a judgment about what their lives are like. I think that that is unfair for everybody who is involved and not only for the person who is being valued, but the person who is doing the valuing. Like I think that we um, deny ourselves an opportunity to to have our lives enriched and changed um, by our sometimes reluctance that's almost always completely born out of societal structures or things that have already been baked into the social cake that teach us to think one thing as opposed to another about somebody. I think that that is unfair to everybody. Um, if I could be a part of shifting that, you're not only for disability, right? Like I don't want it to appear that I'm speaking purely from that vantage point, but for everybody, right? Like we, um, 
we do ourselves a, a disservice and the world an injustice by not understanding people before we place a, a value on them that sometimes even you know, make decisions or behave in a certain way as a result of it. Brooke Ellison, thank you so much for this conversation uh, and for writing your book, Look Both Ways. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Tim. It was a pleasure. That chime means free time. This week, I wanted to discuss some questions that came up on social media after our episode with Dr. Shelley Moore dropped at the beginning of September. They were great questions. And so the first one comes actually from a friend and former colleague. Hi, Deanna. And here is what she says. There's so much discussion about how inclusive settings are needed or how LRE or a continuum of services does not take into account the family or supports needed for children with disabilities to be educated with their typical peers. What I want to know and hear more about is how can full inclusion be successfully implemented? We all know the why, but there's not enough talk about the how. How specifically can we as educators meet the challenging academic needs of students who do not know the alphabet? how to read or write when the curriculum requires writing multiple paragraph essays or reading novels. How do we meet the challenging academic needs of students who cannot count beyond 20 when the curriculum requires students to multiply? What kind of or level of supports specifically could be used in those scenarios I mentioned to adequately support the inclusive classroom? Does the curriculum need to be changed? How many more personnel would we need in an inclusive classroom to meet all the individual needs of the students? I feel like there is no roadmap leading towards inclusion. Deanna, thank you so much for the question. When MCIE goes around and supports uh, schools and districts in Maryland and across the country, these are the exact questions that, that we're getting. And part of the difficulty in answering these questions is that there is no quick answer because the answers really depend on the learners that you have in the classroom and in the school and also the educators. But I think at the heart of your questions, you're talking about what kinds of modifications will need to happen in order for the learner to feel like that they're a member in that community, in that classroom, have a sense of belonging be able to participate in the life of the classroom and also to learn grade level standards. So let's take your first question, Deanna. How specifically can we as educators meet the needs of students who do not know the alphabet or how to read or write when the curriculum requires writing multiple paragraphs or reading novels? And in that specific instance, beyond the systemic and the school-wide changes that will need to be made in order for a learner with that profile to have membership participation and learning in that classroom, it comes down to the planning of the individual learner. So what kinds of modifications are going to be done for the learner to make progress um, towards grade level standards in reading? And so what that looks like is having some sort of plan and we have a number of learning planning tools 
that can guide a team through asking these questions. But the idea is not just to modify the activity to something completely different, but it's to look at what everyone else is learning. And I don't know if you have a specific learner in mind, but let's just go ahead and hypothetically say we have a third grade student who is reading at a kindergarten level or maybe needs visual supports to read and comprehend text. So as a third grade class, if you're reading something that is written at a third grade level, how can that be modified so that the student can access and read the best way that they can at their level and still participate in the lesson? There are lots of ways to modify text. In fact, in one of our bonus episodes, we talked about using AI to help level text to address the the time-intensive work that it takes to uh, level text on your own if you didn't have any sort of tool like that. And the same thing goes for your math example. We can still modify the assignment so that the student can participate in that lesson and work towards grade-level standards, even though they may be at a very entry-level point of that. The other thing that we know from the law is that if a learner needs modifications to to their curriculum, that is not a reason to remove them from general education. So let's talk a little bit about how it is even possible to be able to modify, because I think that is the other part of your question. It sounds great to be able to modify for one learner or for a group of learners that are included in general education. But how do you get to the point where you have the time to do that? Well, that's where we get into more systemic and school-wide and district-wide implementation. And so when MCIE works with school districts, we typically start with a self-assessment of inclusive practices. And we actually have a very long list of indicators of inclusive education practices on our website, It's called the Quality Indicators of Inclusive Schools. And this self-assessment tool is based on our framework for effective and inclusive education. Now, once a school district team goes through these indicators, they have an idea of what they need to work on. So eventually, a school team can decide, hey, we need to support general and special education teachers to work together and collaborate for learners who need modifications. And so there's an expectation that that happens when it's only one learner and the expectation in that grade level or that school is not to have that practice, then it is easier for the school, the grade level, or even a program like an intellectual disability program or an autism program to look at that particular learner and say, see, they don't belong in general education. Nobody else is getting this kind of modification. They belong in a self-contained classroom. So while I wish I could just snap my fingers and make a school be inclusive, there are a lot of things that need to happen before we get to the point of authentic inclusive education. Now for families who are advocating for a learner to be included, you can see why it is so difficult for a school team to understand and wrap their mind around what it means for a learner to be included. So to get down to the rest of your questions, you know, what kind or level of supports does the curriculum need to be changed? 
Those are questions for the team that is planning for that individual learner. And for personnel, what we found is that when you take learners who have already been put in another class or school because of a regional program, take for instance, an intellectual disability program or an autism program, those learners are consolidated into a school. If those learners went to their home school and were supported in natural proportions across the grade level in their home school, there wouldn't be an overrepresentation of learners with a particular kind of disability. And so just hypothetically, imagine with me a school where if you have a particular disability like an intellectual disability or autism, and you live in that neighborhood area of that school, you would go to that school, you would go to the class and grade that you would if you didn't have any sort of identified disability, and you would be served by educators that were in that school, which means that there aren't any inclusion classrooms, there's just classrooms. And there aren't any inclusion teachers, there's just general education teachers and special education teachers. And the roles of the general and the special education teacher would be to serve all learners. But the expectation is that everyone is working together to support all learners. Now, this is really a discussion topic for a complete and full episode. But I do want to say that there are roadmaps available. And while, yes, MCIE can partner with a school or district and provide the roadmap that we have, there are plenty of written resources. And so let me give you a few off the top of my head. The first is a book called The Way to Inclusion, How Leaders Create Schools Where Every Student Belongs by Julie Coston and a number of other authors. The other book I would recommend is an older one called Building Inclusive Schools, Tools and Strategies for Success by Ann Halverson and Thomas Neary. It's actually one of the books that helped me understand how schools could change from a non-inclusive system to an inclusive one. And finally, Leading for All, How to Create Truly Inclusive and Excellent Schools by Jennifer Spencer Imes and Josh Flossie. I'm sure, Deanna, you and a lot of other people have even more questions, and I look forward to being able to talk about that. But as you can see, it's, it's a complex topic, but one that I do love talking about. So the second comment is from Erica, and she says, these are my questions too. And add to them, which the internet has not yet been able to provide me, what is the roadmap to meaningful inclusion for students with violent behaviors that also keeps safe everyone else in the room? This is also a complex issue because one thing that the law does provide is that if a student is causing harm to themselves or others, that that is a reason for removal. But I want us to think about it in a certain lens. If a school or a district already has an inclusive lens, that all learners are general education students, that they don't have to earn their way into a general education class, that even if a learner needs specific interventions to help with challenging behavior, and that student is removed from the general education setting, the intent is that it is only temporary. One of the misunderstandings about full inclusion is that 
somehow it means all students together in the same area and in the same classroom all day, every day, no matter what. We are not in the business of trying to make the lives of learners harder or the lives of teachers harder. And we also can't expect to do the same things that we've been doing, put everyone together and expect it to be okay. We have to change our practices. So in the instance of what Erica is talking about, when a learner is in crisis, we are going to have to figure something out for that learner so that they are safe and everyone else is safe. But the expectation is not that they go to a program where now they can stay, but it's that an intervention is designed for that learner for a short time so that we know that learner is going to be welcomed back into the classroom because that is where they belong. Thanks again to Deanna and Erica for your questions. I look forward to answering more of them and hopefully develop a shared understanding of what inclusive education really means as we go through season 11. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how you can partner with MCIE on school transformation or professional learning opportunities, visit MCIE.org. Thanks again to our incredible sponsor, Changing Perspectives. Love Think Inclusive? Here are a few ways to let us know. Rate us on Spotify or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Become a patron for extra stuff. This week, I have a bonus clip of my conversation with Brooke Ellison and her perspective on whether it is okay as a disabled person to be pro-cure. It's an interesting conversation and it's all included if you are a patron. But if you're not, why don't you join these fine people? Thank you to Carol Q, Aaron P, Jarrett T, Joyner A, Kathy B, Mark C, Gabby M, Kathleen T, and Paula W. We appreciate your continued support of Think Inclusive. Think Inclusive is written, edited, designed, mixed, and mastered by me, Tim Viegas. Original music by Miles Kredich. Additional music from Melody. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. You like I mentioned my nephews. I mentioned yeah. I, there are when I talk about my friends and talk to my friends, um, you know, often they convey to me that they would not understand disability in the same way were it not for you know my friendship with them and how that has made them deeper and richer people. And if the, if that is not an important understanding and lesson in life, like that to me is. In no way less significant than you know, how to add two numbers together, right? It's a fundamental part of humanity. And, and you know, like that is all part, I, th- I think, of the childhood experience and the, and the growth process that you might not get if, if you don't have um, the richness of diversity in the classroom. Yeah, um, that's a great point. I wanted to... I I bookmarked a bunch of things in your book, in your book, as you can see right there. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. From MCIE.